Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Disclaimer. This is going to be a very different kind of message. Last two weeks, I've had the opportunity to share with you two of my favorite Bible stories, back-to-back in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, chapter 4. In John chapter 4, two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus talking to the last person in the world that we would have thought on a human level that he would come to interact with. She was a woman who had been raised in a pagan culture, in a false religion, married five times, divorced five times, sleeping with a man who wouldn't give her his name. So on paper, she might look like the last person in the world that God would be interested in, and yet Jesus made a whole trip just for her. We had a great time with that message, and it's extraordinary to me when I've looked at what's happened through New Spring and through television, God has saved so many people through that particular sermon. We're going to run it again in the first part of January because God has used it so greatly. And then last week, we looked at the first person in the world that we would have thought that God would have been interested in. He was the leading religious scholar in Jerusalem, Nicodemus. And we saw both times that he had the same message for both people. For the last person, the first person in the world, the gospel, the good news, that Jesus died for our sins, that he hung on the cross to pay for our misdeeds and sins and transgression, and then rose from the grave and offers a gift to anyone who will declare spiritual bankruptcy and invite Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So as I said, Those are probably two of the most enjoyable messages I'll ever bring. But today I have to go to a very different place to bring you a very different kind of message. Because I believe it's fair, it's academically honest for me to ask the question, with such good news, with such an extraordinary offer on the table, why do most people not believe? And Jesus was honest about this. He said there's a broad road that leads to destruction and there's a narrow road that leads to everlasting life. And it was Jesus, not me. It was Jesus who said few, comparably few, find that road that leads to everlasting life. Well, here's my question for us to consider today, at least to begin with. If if it's so simple as choosing to believe, why wouldn't anyone accept? Why don't people believe in Jesus? You have to go to a more basic question. There's a more fundamental question. And that is, why are people atheists? Why do people not believe in God? Well, I think that's a fair question for us to take on today. And and I think it's very important, it's critically important for us as a church to be academically honest with ourselves and recognize that the voices with the microphones in our culture are primarily voices for non-theism. I mean, I remember when I was a kid in school, and I sound like all the old people sound to all of you who are under 20. I remember when I was in school, I grew up in public school in Fort Worth, Texas. I went to a large middle school with like 1,800 students. I went to a high school with 4,000 students. When I was in middle school, we did three assemblies, one for sixth grade, one for seventh grade, one for eighth grade. And it was my responsibility to read the resurrection story out of the Gospels. Most of us can't even imagine that. And when I was in high school, my German class went around and caroled all the other classes with Christmas carols. 
But some strange thing has happened in our country today. I guess somebody blew off the dust of the Constitution and suddenly found hidden language that must have been written with invisible ink or disappearing ink that all of that stuff is unconstitutional. While I stand first in line to appreciate everyone in public education and higher education, as you know, one of our ministries here at New Spring is to, is to give resources to public school teachers. So I stand first in line to respect education. But I have to be honest with myself. The prevailing message in organized education in the United States is that God basically has no involvement. But it isn't just education. It's the official message of our government. You let any governor of a state in the United States put up the Ten Commandments on the state grounds and all the powers that are will rise up against that governor and say that you can't do that. It used to be that there was a crash or an antivity scene on almost every municipal, state, and federal location. And yet today that's considered in most places unconstitutional. So let us be honest with ourselves about the fact that the prevailing message of our culture is atheistic. It is atheistic. They like to say, no, we're staying away from the message of God, but they're promulgating the idea that the entire natural order came about as a result of unguided evolution. So the question that we should ask today is, are those of us who believe in God that deluded? It's an important question for us to ask because statistics in the United States show, not just in the United States, but I think it's most troubling that this is in the United States. Statistics show that there is a decline in belief in God, and in the last decade, it's been a precipitous decline. I think you feel that when you look at the messages of the culture. 10% fewer people claim to be Christian than claim to be Christian 10 years ago. There's never been that kind of drop. On the other hand, 10% more claim to be non-believers. So I think it's just fair for us to look each other in the eye, those of us who believe in God, and ask the question, is there something wrong with us? Are we that deluded? Well, even though this might not be my favorite kind of sermon to preach, here at New Spring, we're not afraid of questions. Questions open discussion. And beyond that, I am an old debater from high school and college days. I enjoy mixing it up. And I don't know if any of you have ever debated it the competitive level, but it is interesting. People who are in debate have a single proposition that they debate all year long. I still remember clearly the proposition from my junior year, my senior year. You debate that proposition what feels like hundreds of times, and if you go to a tournament, one round you're affirmative, the next round you're negative. You have to learn to debate things that you don't even believe as, as well as you can debate things you do believe. So I'm, I'm familiar with the rules of logic. So I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid to mix it up. And, I, and I've had these discussions with friends informally at dinner tables. I've had these discussions at, at the university, talking about this question, does God exist, interacting with the non, student non-theist society. I'm comfortable with this. Although it's not my favorite thing to do, I'd much rather preach John 4 than talk about these things. But here's the reason why I talk about it today. What I don't understand is that typically churches kind of like retreat over in a corner, and I don't hear Christian leaders talk about these issues very much. It's as if those issues don't exist when all these other voices are out in the broader context. And so what are, what's happening is there are kids and young people growing up in churches thinking, well, my church must not have any answer for this. Well, I just want to open the door today. Obviously, this begs a much larger discussion, but I want to open the door today to deal with the question why do not people believe in God 
And are we deluded in avoiding the obvious ramifications of the question? Well, as I said, I have a lot of friends who are non-theists, and we have a lot of discussions together. And, of course, I've heard from others who speak to me who are not necessarily friends. These are just the messages that I've been given as to why people do not believe in God. And also hear these two reasons in the broader context of the culture. The first one, obviously, this is no surprise to you. The first one has to do with origins. And the upshot of it is this. The idea of special creation or an intelligent first cause doesn't hold up to modern science. In other words, there are those who like to believe that in the pre-modern era, it was common to believe in the power, uh, to, to the existence of a higher power. But after the modern era and the industrial revolution and then the, what we know in science in the last hundred years, there's no longer a reasonable hypothesis to believe in an intelligent first cause. And the stick goes something like this. People who believe in an intelligent creator are people of religion and not people of science. I have a lot of problems with that. The first problem I have is one that I almost never hear discussed, but it's really important to me. I always notice that people who reject an intelligent first cause conveniently start with the natural order already baked in. It's like they, come, they, they arrive in a world with the natural order fully formed and fully functioning. In other words, man didn't start from scratch and dream up cellular biology or the plant world or the animal kingdom or the human body or DNA or physics or mathematics or the universe. When we showed up, it was already here. Now, if man had shown up and dreamed all of this up and built it, that would be impressive. Might even make me a believer. But no, the natural order was fully present when humans showed up. The reason I say that's convenient is it's pretty easy to make up a story how stuff got here accidentally if it's already here. It would be like someone walking into an empty, fully developed, fully functioning Boeing plant with assembly lines and finished 787s and saying, I'm going to develop a science of how this could happen without engineers, without designers, without planners and builders. It could be done. I'm, I'm just being honest with you. A person could walk into an empty, fully formed, fully functioning Boeing plant with assembly lines and finished 787s and say, I am going to develop a science on how this could have all arrived here without developers, planners, engineers, and builders. It could be done, but it would defy reason, logic, and various other settled sciences. That is one of the issues I have with people who reject the plausibility of an intelligent first cause, who conveniently arrive at a fully natural, fully natural order baked in. Now, I've been a part of a lot of these discussions through the years, and, and this is said to me oftentimes in a friendly way. It goes something like this. Mark, you believe in God, an intelligent first cause. You believe in special creation because you are a person of religion. We reject that because we are people of science. I know every time I hear that, I have something in my hip pocket when I get told that. I know there's a weakness in that construct that they're not admitting and that I'm not buying. It goes down like this. It all comes down to nomenclature or classification. 
we're familiar with nomenclature and classification. I mean, for instance, we say there is science and there's religion and history and philosophy. All those are classifications. They're classifications of messaging. Okay, I accept nomenclature. It's, it's one of those things that we use as humans to navigate different schools of thought. But here's what I do know. And I've said this, whether I'm talking to non-theists, whether I'm talking to people who agree with me theologically, I said this when I was in the boardroom of the foreign ministry in Israel to some of the greatest Jewish leaders, some of the greatest Jewish minds of our time. Listen to me, New Spring. You can tell me all day long what's science, what's philosophy, what's religion. Everything is going to bow to fact. I believe that there's a God, but if there is no God, ultimately at some point, I'm going to run headlong into fact. I believe his son is Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of the world. If that's not true, I'm going to run headlong into fact. I can say all day long what I can say this is religion. I can say it's belief in the Bible. But ultimately, please never forget this. Don't get lost in the weeds of nomenclature. Everything ultimately bows to fact, whether it's science, whether it's religion, whether it's philosophy. Ultimately, everything bows to fact. But here is the problem. Here's the weakness in the construct that doesn't get admitted. It goes like this. An intelligent first cause or intelligent design or special creation, by definition, can never be science. So, in other words, if the discussion ever leads that direction, instantly it's no longer science and it becomes part of the nomenclature of religion. Now, take a deep breath and think about that. If the idea of God cannot be science by definition, not, not because it's been disproved, but because it's just not convenient to the nomenclature. Think about that for a moment. Now, here's the first thing that comes to my mind, and I think about it every time I get into this discussion. I think I said this in a, in a friendly discussion at Wichita State in the student non-theist society. We're, we're, a lot of us were friends in those days, and we spent time together. I made this point in the three-hour discussion at Wichita State, and there was no answer for it. I remember at the time, I sort of checked it off as they didn't even try to tackle this point. Science does not apply that standard in any other area of analysis. For instance, in the analysis, in other words, if science comes upon, let's just say through archaeology, some sort of complex system, complex machine, or some sort of mechanism that has interrelated um, um, systems. There's never the slightest suggestion that it just happened without intelligent involvement. For instance, if science comes across a 787, the question is who designed it, who built it, who engineered it? If science found an MRI machine, it would be the clear understanding that there was an invention and that it was developed and engineered and built. That same thing is true with a smartphone or for that matter, a fountain pen. Ronald Reagan, when he was first having his meetings with Gorbachev, he kind of freaked Gorbachev out because Gorbachev figured that they were there to talk about the reduction of nuclear arms, which they were, which was a difficult subject. But one of the things that Gorbachev could never understand was why Reagan was so concerned about religious freedom. To Gorbachev, that was an unimportant point, and he couldn't figure out why Reagan kept harping on it. And in one of the first discussions that they had, Michael Beschloss writes about this in his wonderful book. In one of the first conversations that Reagan had with Gorbachev, Reagan said to Gorbachev that he was troubled that his son Ron had not, Reagan's words, accepted Jesus Christ. Gorbachev, of course, was an atheist. 
And, and, and here's what Reagan said to Gorbachev. He said, you know, I've always wanted to do something. I've always wanted to have a chef prepare an eight-course meal, have, eat it with my son, Ron, and after the meal is over, ask Ron, do you think there was a chef? Well, it didn't convert Gorbachev, kind of frustrated him, and Gorbachev said, well, yeah, of course, he would have to admit that. But this is the, this is the point. I'm just saying, just making the point for atheism to suggest that an infinitely more complex organism like the human brain which I would point out, with all of our acquired knowledge, we barely understand. Or even a single cell to, for, for, for science to hint that a brain or a single cell happened by accident goes against every scientific tenet of analysis that we utilize in the analysis of any other organism or system. In other words, let me put it in simple terms. Your smartphone required intelligent design. Your dog got here by natural accident. How do you feel about that? I'm just saying, academically honest. You, you could be here today and say, Mark, I don't believe in God. I'm Okay. At some point, you're going to have to get in the corner, sit in a room. If you're honest, if you are an honest thinker, you're going to have to ask yourself how you navigate that question with all of the could-haves or may-haves that so-called science likes to employ in these kinds of discussions. So then, if it's so implausible, how does this questionable concept get sold? Back to nomenclature. As I said, I understand that this doesn't get articulated in discussions, and I know why. There's a weakness. There's an implicit weakness in it. There's a little bait and switch that goes on here. It's presented as if science has explored the concept of a creator and rendered it false. But here's where the bait and switch comes in. Any introduction of intelligent first cause automatically in their way of thinking cannot be science. It is by definition religion, therefore it can never be scientific. All of you who took philosophy class, all of you who were at the university, tell me what kind of thinking that is. We have an adjective for that kind of thinking, we call it circular. That is circular thinking and circular logic. The debater in me wants to scream they haven't defeated the concept of an intelligent first cause. They have electively, willfully, blindly ruled it out. The weird thing is that is what, and Lord knows I've watched this in my lifetime, the weird thing is that is what blind faith religion does. I mean, for everyone who wants to criticize Extreme fundamentalist theology, that is exactly what it does. It employs circular logic and rules out any concept that there might be another thought. Let me give you a very hokey illustration of this, but it's, it's one that helps me think through this. At my house, I have a pair of brown boots. They're in a closet. Let's say I want to find my brown boots. But for some reason, I electively, willfully choose to ignore and leave out and eliminate the closet where my boots are. Now, I have many other closets in my house. I could build a science around discovering my boots in the potential closets where you and I know my boots are not. I could, I could have all kinds of scientific tenets. People put boots in closets. Sometimes they put them in the closet nearest the door. I could come up with all kinds of tenets. But here's the deal. If I, if I electively eliminate the closet where my boots are, I'm never going to find my boots. I can, I can navigate that science over and over and over, create all kinds of minutiae, grow all kinds of weeds for people to get lost in, but at the end of the day, I'm not going to find my boots. 
And therein is the issue with nomenclature. So, has the idea of intelligent design or an intelligent first cause fallen? Has it cratered under the scrutiny of science? No, actually, science has abdicated. I would be the first one who would love to invite science in to the discussion of an intelligent first cause. Now, there's the second reason why people are atheists, or they tell me they're atheists. And this one is even more common. And maybe you've heard this today. Someone will say, they'll tell you about something bad that happened, which all of us are acquainted with. And then they'll say something like this. You are a believer in God, and you say that your God is all good and all powerful. If he's all powerful, then consequently he could have stopped this from happening. Your God did not have stopped evil from happening, ergo, your God does not exist. And I've seen atheists sit back and tell me that, take a deep breath as though it were the coup de grace argument that would stop me. Which, by the way, Christians and atheists both think they have the coup de grace argument. And that's, I mean, I've had Christians ask me questions about interaction with non-theists. Did you tell them this? And it's like, yeah, that won't be the first time they've heard that. We don't have the coup de grace argument. Neither side. But I am always a little puzzled by that one. And here's why. The Bible has never attempted to hide the fact that bad things happen. I mean, you read the Bible, and it's full of stories of bad things happening. In fact, the first narrative in the Bible is Genesis 3. And what happens in Genesis 3 is man sins. And consequently, man ushers in all of the evil that's in the world. The Bible tells us up front, and for the next 66 books, the Bible tells about bad things that happen to good people. And it explains that in order to, for God to give people the power to love, they had to be given the power to choose. And one thing we know about human nature, when it's given the power to choose, it often chooses to do evil things. And when people choose to do evil things, pain comes into our world. The Bible's never tried to hide that. In fact, Scripture tells us the plan of redemption was for God to overcome evil through the coming of Jesus Christ into our world. And God came into our world, and he actually, actually suffered and experienced the worst of the pain by dying on the cross for our sins. The Bible has never tried to hide the fact that the best people in the world suffer in this broken world. And someone will say, well, you have a book about miracles, about God doing miracles of healing for people. But in the broken world, I would point out that even the people that Jesus did miracles for still ended painfully. I mean, Lazarus still had to die again after Jesus raised him from the grave. But here may be the larger question. When non-theists tell me evil exists in the world, you say your God is all good or all powerful, so your God could stop evil, so evil exi the existence of evil means that God does not exist. I always wonder if they've ever stopped to consider that they, even though they have ruled out the existence of God, they still live in a world with evil, they still live in a world with pain, they still live in a broken world with now no explanation for it and no God. I mean, it's not like losing God has helped them any in regard to this. And I have to admit, it's a little stronger argument than the first one, but I'm still not buying. And by the way, history has proven time and time again that God followers volunteer more to alleviate pain. They give more to alleviate pain and are far more altruistic in relieving suffering than those who don't believe. Bottom line, here we go. 
I'm going to close the message and get to maybe the most important part right now. This is just me talking, and I'm not trying to disrespect anyone who has a different point of view than I do in regard to the existence of God. I'll tell you what I've come to believe from my friendships and my conversations and these discussions. I don't think those two constructs are why people don't believe in God. For one thing, they're just, they're just too easy to defeat. They're too repetitive, too redundant, too simplistic. I mean, some of the most brilliant people in the world get very simplistic when they articulate these things. So I've come to believe that people don't really believe this stuff. It's not why they're non-theists. I believe they give up on God first, and then they latch on to these convenient circular arguments. I think it's something else, and it's way bigger than the two that I've just given you. And this comes to the heart of why I'm preaching this message today. I think people reject God. And by the way, we're not just, not, we're not just now talking about those who claim non-theism. We're talking about those that are in religion that's dead. We're even talking about Bible-believing Christians who are in churches like this. I think we encounter something in our world. It's the challenge of trying to make Jesus and the Bible and faith fit the issues of this world. And this, as I said, this is the problem of non-theists. It's the problem of American consumers. It's even the problem that a lot of people in religion have, maybe even people like New Spring. It goes like this. Our world is temporary and broken. Jesus comes into our world offering us a solution, offering us a gift. The problem is what Jesus is offering doesn't seem to match up with the problems in our world that we perceive. If Jesus came along and basically had the idea for how this broken world to be fixed so that we could live cushy, comfortable lives and have heaven on earth, I think most people would be willing to believe in God. But the issue is that Jesus comes along and he brings the solution and the people in the world look at the brokenness of the world and say, that doesn't match up. Our world, and this is blunt, and I don't know if I've ever heard a minister say this before, our world asks questions that Jesus doesn't answer. Our world presents problems that Jesus didn't come to solve. The world looks at things and says, this is what needs fixing. And Jesus said, I didn't come to fix that right now. Jesus comes along and says, this is the issue. But the world says, that's not a problem for me. And Jesus said, this is the solution. And the world says, I can't see how that advantages anybody. There's so many examples of this in the gospel, so I know it's true. But one of my favorite is while Jesus was busy teaching one day, all of a sudden this young guy ran up to him and interrupted his teaching because he had a critical problem for Jesus to solve. It went like this, and there are families that deal with this kind of stuff. He said, my brother won't share the inheritance with me. You make him share our family inheritance. Now, in other words, he was saying, I have this problem I'm expecting you to fix this problem. Now look at how Jesus responded. Jesus said, who appointed me an arbiter or a judge between you? And then he went on to say, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Do you see that disconnect there? 
Fix my problem. And Jesus is saying, you know what the real problem is? The real problem is men are greedy and your life, your, your life down here is not all that important compared to the life that you're going to live. And so consequently, your life is way bigger than your possessions. I feel pretty sure that guy walked away and said, I don't believe in this guy anymore because I got problems he didn't fix. I'm asking questions he didn't answer. And he's coming along offering solutions that make no sense to me. And that was constant. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Give God what's God, give Caesar what's Caesar's. Let us be clear, Jesus came into our world to answer questions that the world doesn't think are important. And Jesus came with the highest price solution in the history of the universe. And the world says, I don't see the benefit of someone dying on a cross for me. Never forget that Jesus' worst enemies who clamored for him to be crucified on a cross, those same people would have made him king if he had overthrown Rome and given them fish and bread every day. But he didn't come to do that. He came into our world to fix what was really broken, which was to give his life as a sacrifice for sin. I've taken this time today to say this is why people reject Jesus. For the last two weeks, we saw two people, the last person in the world and the first person in the world, come through the same door and accept Jesus' gift. I want to do something right now that unless you watch New Spring on television or another great ministry, you're never going to see on television. You're never going to hear in secular university. You probably won't even hear this in a Christian university these days, so-called. I want to give you the logic of heaven. There is a logic to heaven. There is a very brilliant logic to heaven. But because God's solutions to our brokenness in our world is not what the world thinks it needs, this logic gets pushed aside. You know what's really ironic about this? Even the logic that I hear of heaven that's presented at church is pretty, oh, it's kind of a trickle. We need to understand that when Jesus came into our world, which is what we're celebrating at Christmas. There was a brilliant plank-on-plank plank logic of heaven that God lets us in on. Time out. If you're a new springer, chances are you know how to get to heaven. I, talk, I tell you about it every week. I give you a chance to pray. You know that. But do you know why? the plan of salvation works. Here we go. I'm going to read this to you. Maybe someday I'll do a whole series on this text. This is in Hebrews chapter 2. And so what you're going to see is you're going to see God lay down a plank of logic, build another plank on top of that one, build another plank on top of that one, build another plank, and when I get through, you're going to understand that Jesus coming into our world had to be the way that it was. Here we go. Hebrews 2.14. Because... God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood. The Son also became flesh and blood. We have a problem. We can't fix it. We can't get to God. Our sin keeps us from getting to God. God can't come to us. He loves us, but we're sinners. We're flesh and blood. We're human. So what does God do? Because we're human, God had to become human in the person of Jesus. For only by a a human being, could he die? 
God can't die. But sin requires death. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Adam sinned. Adam's sin spread to all men. Death passed upon all men because all have sinned. So consequently, if a person sins, death is the price to pay. Not, and death, not just as physical death, but eternal separation from God. So think about this. God had to find a way to step in and take the bullet for us. But he couldn't take the bullet for us if he's not human. He can't get to us. So because we're humans, God became human. When you look at that baby in your manger, in your crash at home or your nativity scene, when you see that baby, this is the whole deal. Because we're human, he had to be human. And only by being human could he die. Oh, I get chills when I read this next line. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Oh, Adam and Eve, they surrendered it over to him in the Garden of Eden. But when he died in our place and paid the price for our sin, he ripped the power of death away from the devil. It's interesting. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that Jesus tasted death. He didn't drink it down. He just tasted it for us. That's why when John sees Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus tells John, get up and don't be afraid because I'm standing here and I have the keys of death and hell and the grave. <laughs> he won them on the cross. Okay. Because we're human, he had to become human. Because only by being human could he die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. And only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. See, if I don't believe in God, this is the only life that I have, and I have to be scared to death of dying. But I can live all out with my accelerator all, to the, all the way, to, not my real literal accelerator, but just living life full. Because I understand the best is yet to come. See, I don't have to, I'm not a slave to the fear of dying anymore. Because I was human, God had to be human. Only by him being human could he die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Therefore, verse 17, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and high priest. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. And since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he's able to help us. Uh, that's not a great translation right there. He is able, the literal says, to run to the aid of us when we're going through tough times. Okay, did you catch that? Because we're human, God had to become human. But only by being human could he die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. And having broken the power of death, he now has the ability to pay for our sins fully and then stand in the presence of God and intercede for us. The beauty of Christmas, the beauty of Christmas is so much more than lights on the tree, although I enjoy those. Here is the beauty of Christmas. Here is God. He loves you and me. He loves the world so much, but he can't touch me because I am a sinner. And as much as God loves me, he can't get to me. And here I am. And I would love to get to God. But I tell you one thing I've learned about religion. It's never enough. And beyond that, how am I going to pay for all the stuff I've already done? I, mean, I, can't, I can't live perfect, can't undo what I've already done. I can't get to God. I might want to touch God, but I can't touch him. He's holy. God wants to touch me. He can't touch me because I'm a sinner. So God fixed a way for us to get to him. He sent his son into the world. God and human at the same time. Because he was God, he could touch God. And because he was human, he could touch me. And here's what he did. 
He came over to me and to you, and he took our load of sin, and he put it on his own shoulders. And by himself, he went to a cross, and he paid for it so that I'm not wearing my sin anymore, and you're not wearing your sin. And he rose from the grave, having fulfilled everything that his father sent him to do, so that he could reach out with one hand because he was God, and he could touch God the Father. And he could reach out and touch me now because my sin has been paid for. And he could bring God and me together. Not just for today, but for eternity. Merry Christmas. That is... That, ladies and gentlemen, is the logic of heaven. I can't speak for anybody else. I don't try to own the debate. I even tell my friends who don't agree with me. I'm not trying to jam you. I just want to seat at your table. I do play hardball. <laughs> Lovingly. I can't speak for anybody else, but I do believe. I do believe in Jesus. I put all my chips on the table. I pushed all my chips on the middle table and betting everything on Jesus. I feel good about my choice. If you haven't made that decision today, could I invite you in? I mean, the, the, the deal's on the table. The offer's there. God has made a way for anybody. Whether you, like me, you feel a little closer to the Samaritan woman, last person in the world, or you grew up pretty religious, you feel a little bit like Nicodemus, it's okay, it's the same door. It's Jesus. That's why I picked the title of the series. It's Jesus. If you want to have him in your life, you just invite him in. He says he's standing at the door knocking. I think I put this in the Christmas message. He's standing at the door of knocking. He said, if anybody opens the door, I'll come in. I'm going to lead you in a prayer right now. These are not magic words. But if you want to join me in this prayer, the living God of heaven will listen to you, and he'll answer your prayer. You ready? There we go. Dear God, I am a sinner, but I believe you love me so much. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. I may not understand, but I choose to believe. I trust Jesus to be my Savior and my King. Help me now to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you just pray with me, have a gift I want to give you. If you're here on campus... This is going to be real easy. Now, let me just tell you what's in here. There's a new spring Bible, and there's also a book I wrote. I'll try to hold it right side up called My New Walk with God that answers a lot of the questions that you may still have. If you just accepted Christ on campus, all you have to do is text PRAYED, P-R-A-Y-E-D, to 97,000, and then go straight out to any info center. They'll give you this box. They won't hassle you. They won't ask for your routing number. They just want to give you this box. And you can take it home with you today and you can take your first steps. Now, if you're watching online or watching on television, we still want to offer you the same gift. All you have to do is text PRAYED, P-R-A-Y-E-D, to 97000. We'll send this to you. Thank you for being here. God bless. We'll see you next weekend. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.